Former guerrilla Gustavo Petro rode to victory Sunday on promises of profound social and economic change. We are writing history right now. A new history for Colombia, for Latin America, and for the world. The president-elect has also vowed to fully implement a 2016 peace deal with FARC rebels and seek talks with the still-active ELN guerrillas. His victory adds Colombia to a list of Latin American countries that have elected progressives in recent years. This is The Brief. And the Anti-Empire Project. A timely co-broadcast, a roundtable on the election in Colombia with our longtime friend and political activist with Plebos and Camino, focused on combating the land theft of indigenous peoples, and the former Deputy Health Minister of Colombia, Dr. Manuel Rosenthal. So let's get right into it. So on Sunday, Colombia, in a runoff election, elected leftist ex-rebel Gustavo Petro for the presidency in a narrow and historic election. Petro is set to become Colombia, which is the third largest country in Latin America's first leftist president, defeating a millionaire tycoon. Chile, Peru, Honduras elected leftist presidents in 2021, and Brazil, former president Luis Lula da Silva is leading polls for this coming election as well. Petro is a senator in his third attempt to win the presidency and had just over 50% of the votes, while real estate magnate Rodolfo Hernandez had 47%, with almost all the ballots counted as of this morning. Petro had proposed ambitious pension plans, tax plan, health and agricultural reforms, and changes into how Colombia fights the drug cartels and other armed groups. Petro will have a tough time delivering on his promises as he does not have a majority in Congress, which is key to carrying out the reforms. In recent legislative elections, Petro's political movement won 20 seats in the Senate, a plurality, but he would have to make some serious concessions in negotiations with other parties. Petro was once a rebel with the now-defunct M-19 movement and was granted amnesty after being jailed for his involvement in the group. So now let's talk more with Dr. Manuel Rosenthal. Manuel, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's very, very nice to be on The Brief, and I'm one of those that listens to The Brief from a distance. Well, it's great to have you. We're very excited. So, Manuel, set the scene for us in Colombia. How significant is this runoff election? How possible are electoral politics as an engine? What's going on here? Should we be excited about this? Well, it, it is a triumph, no doubt. And it is a, overcoming a major hurdle. Colombia has been labeled by Father Javier Giraldo an authority in human rights and somebody who knows Colombia from the ground and then also from a macroeconomic political analysis. And he labeled Colombia accurately as a genocidal democracy. That is what Colombia has been. So the two components have to exist for it to be the longest standing democracy in the continent, with a very brief period of a formal dictatorship. 
that was actually put in place by the two traditional political parties of the elite. So even the dictatorship was put in place by political parties. So it is genocidal and it is democratic formally only. There are elections regularly in Colombia and in those elections one can only choose from the established elite that can only rule through the most violent political structure in this entire continent. When you added up all the disappeared people through the dictatorships in the southern cone, these were at most 15% of the disappeared people in 10 years in Colombia only. So this is a dramatic situation. So you have elections and you have terror against people. So winning an election in Colombia by somebody, the two of them, Gustavo Petro and the vice presidential candidate, an Afro-Colombian woman who was a maid at wealthy people's houses in the city of Cali, and then who stood up against mining and walked into the Ministry of the Interior in Bogota with the women from Cauca, Afro-Colombian women, is an extraordinary achievement. Plus, Gustavo Petro is probably the strongest critical voice, the most rigorous critical voice against this establishment that has existed or is alive still in Colombia. So you have the, those are huge achievements. And then I would summarize my answer by saying, if you could be a witness to and take part in the party that is going on in this country, mm. you would get a feel what this means. This is an explosion. And today happens to be a holiday. So it will be an explosion for the whole week. And so there you go. That is an achievement, no doubt. That achievement is, has the same dimension of our fear for what could happen. So that's in brief my answer. Justin, you are a founding member of the Brief Podcast and a frequent guest. I want to ask you the same question, but like put into the context of how Colombia fits within the current pink tide that is happening around Latin America and the context of the achievement of this victory by Petro against the backdrop of the U.S. trying to control what's happening in Venezuela, as they've <laughs> tried to do for many years now, and Colombia as kind of this like flashpoint of control by the U.S. Uh, primarily. What does this victory mean when we look at what's been happening in Colombia and Venezuela and elsewhere? But how significant is this? I should kind of acknowledge my Colombia teacher. I have like uh, one person that I learned, like maybe 70, 80 percent of what I know. It's His name is Manuel Rosenthal. And then I don't know, there's another 20 percent from like <laughs> our mutual teacher is Hector Mondragon. Manuel obviously has other sources, but I wanted to kind of acknowledge my lineage here. So, uh, you know, Manuel can examine how well I've learned. But the idea of elections and change, and Manuel mentioned the fear that we have, you know, that Colombians have, and I, I'm just putting myself in there with, <laughs> with, with Colombians, the fear that we have, friends of Colombia, which has to do with exactly what you say, 
all the things that are not subject to election in Colombia and right. in Latin America. So, I mean, the Congress is a much smaller problem than the armed forces, the secret services, the, you know, the so-called deep state, which in Colombia and in Latin America generally plays this huge role. Colombia actually exports this kind of paramilitary forces to go do things all over the place. There were Colombian paramilitaries in Honduras. There were Colombian right. paramilitaries implicated in Haiti, even in the assassination of the president recently in Haiti. So it's part of a bigger project. And like you said, it's always been. So like our friend Hector Mondragon told us 20 plus years ago that there was this massive package of military aid to Colombia 20 plus years ago called Plan Colombia from the U.S., $1.3 billion from the U.S., but it was like 4 or $5 billion of Colombian money that went into this project. And Hector said, you know, this is not just Colombia. Venezuela is the target of this. It's a project to control the whole region. So Petro now, lots of Politicians have been in this position before in Latin America, even in recent history. Congratulations, you know, you, you're now the president of this electorally determined thing. Does that mean that you have state power now? Does that mean that you control the economy, the engines of the economy? Does that mean that you control the, uh, the military force? Does that mean you have a monopoly on military force? Uh, no. And in fact, you know, I, I can throw this back to Manuel because I'm sure, Manuel, you listened to Petro's speech yesterday. And I, there were a number of things that I thought were really interesting. First of all, it was very, you know, I'm the president of all Colombians. So he, he made a big point of saying, we will not be persecuting our political opponents. Uribe himself will be welcome in the palace if he wants to talk about the future of Colombia. He kind of signaled this thing where he said, you know, we're not just about redistributing wealth. You have to create wealth in order to redistribute wealth. So there's a kind of a trying to maybe say, you know, we can make some kind of alliance with, you know, with the wealthy who hate him and want to overthrow him and probably want to kill him. You know, there was a criticism of extractive economy and mining and the damage that mining has done. There was a very open criticism of the false positives where the Colombian military over the past decades has murdered thousands and thousands of young people claiming that they were guerrillas. That's like one of the big scandals. And Petro had a big role, actually, in exposing that scandal at the national level. He had some things in there, but he also had some other things in there that were very, you know, I think he was trying to signal like, uh, we can play ball here. We're not going to lord it over you now. We're not reopening old wounds. He's talked about healing. He talked about love. Lots of things about love and the politics of love and seducing voters. Yeah, anyway, it was it was a, it was a very interesting speech. And I, I'm actually curious about your reaction to it, too, Manuel. Yeah, what did you think, Manuel? I have to give you a bit of background so that one gets an idea of this. First of all, I already mentioned and Justin reinforces it. The hurdle to win an election in Colombia establishes the conditions. You have to win over an electorate that is accustomed, used to, there's a culture that has moved the country's mentality to the right and to the establishment. So you have to win that. And it was very clear that uh, Petro's political party is called the historical pact. So it's a pact, it's an agreement. Second, he clearly said he's a capitalist. 
as clear as that. He said it clearly. And then he said something that we know very much about and that always fails, that you can be a good capitalist, not destroy the territory, stop the war, stop the extractivism, and then we love each other, but still be under capitalism, which we already know about. But the background I wanted to give you is this. Uh, Colombia has had the worst regime in the continent. That's an achievement in a continent that has Haiti, for example. Haiti has extreme poverty. You know Haiti much better than I do. But Colombia is worse in that it's wealthier, larger, and yet it's the Israel of Latin America. That says it all against its own people. So you don't have the Palestinians. You have the poor, the black, the women in 90% of the population. That's what the war is against. And from there exported elsewhere. So there was an uprising against this without any precedent in Latin America's history. There are 1,120 municipalities in Colombia. 800 stood up the first day of the strike on the 28th of April last year. And that's an explosion. That isn't an uprising. It's larger than that. In fact, there were 18 million people out of a population of 43, including children, that were up that first day. And this kept going for three months. The only way to control this was war. People felt how civilians, paramilitaries, wealthy civilians, police, the army and paramilitaries just shot, murdered and disappeared people en masse. What were we standing for? What did we come out to the streets for? We came for our liberation from the state, from the state, deep state and everything. We didn't care about this government. We didn't want any government. So in essence, what I want to say is the state in Latin America, I think elsewhere, but for sure in Latin America, the states have failed. They don't work. They don't solve any problem. There are a colonial imposition that has failed and will fail and can only succeed through repression, lying, and buying people out. So we finally stood up against that. The proof of that was the pretext was a, a tax reform, that they were going to tax food. Taxing food in the country that produces 92% of the global cocaine production. 6% of our GNP comes from laundering hard money from cocaine. So there is wealth in this country like you wouldn't imagine, but it is not taxable and it just makes the wealthier, the wealthy wealthier. And the US loves it because it flows that way as well. And the financial institutions, etc. So you have to understand this is the state in Colombia. The state is connected to a huge economy, plus extractivism, plus oil, plus all these other stuff. We were surprised to see each other in the streets, in those numbers, spontaneously. Mm -hmm. And so Gustavo Petro, within a week of this uprising, clearly told us to go back home, because we had achieved that the government had taken away the tax reform. And we didn't. We didn't go back home. We went on for three months. Why did he want us back home? 
because he saw his electoral project would be threatened. He wants to rule and govern from the government, from the state. He's not against the state. He's in favor of the state. So what happened in this year is very much like what happened in Chile. October of 2019, the whole of Chile was in the streets. And Gabriel Boric signed an agreement on behalf of nobody himself with Piñera's government to save the Chilean state and become a president. And the Constituent Assembly was the agreement. Everybody in Chile, except his close circle, called him a traitor. Within two years, he was the savior in the electoral process because the opponent was a Nazi. A Nazi. I'm not making this up. So very similar situation in Colombia. Very similar, except Petro managed to gather the illusions and the hope of that anti-state sentiment and agenda into his political campaign. And those are still there. So that's why we're afraid of this stuff. We're afraid of it because he cannot deliver what he promised and he had to promise everything, what we stood up for. He cannot deliver it. Francia Marquez cannot deliver the end of racism. He cannot deliver the end of drug trafficking. They cannot deliver the end of war and inequality, but they have promised that, no less than that. That's our fear. And behind that background is the other one. There isn't a single progressive government in the Americas, not one, that has achieved anything but worse than before. So if our illusions are all in that basket and that fails, where are we going? So our hope at the same time, our joy is if this uprising becomes an agenda in different environments because we've had to survive in spite of the state and not because of it, and we know how to do that, if that becomes an agenda from below, then Petro will have to rule from below. But if it uh, continues to be a promise from above and he will rule like any other progressive government, then we will lose the popular strength. The state will be legitimated again and then we'll be in a worse off situation than before. Towards the end of Petro's speech, he talked about regional dialogues and, and how he would have a whole bunch of regional dialogues. Does that have anything to do with what you're talking about? Is that like... Yes, thank you. It's, it has everything to do because Petro comes from M19. M19 had one proposal. It was an urban guerrilla, the first urban guerrilla. So and Colombia was already an urban movement. Its position was that people could construct an alternative to capitalism and the state and not the guerrilla forces and not the guerrilla commanders and not the political parties. It was people. So the proposal that came out of M19 was, we are going to launch a national dialogue, community by community, so people can develop their own agenda. So this is an echo of that, no doubt, absolutely no doubt. But I'll give you something that most people don't know about that happened yesterday morning. Gustavo Petro went to see the wisest of the wisest indigenous peoples in Colombia, 
the mammals of the Sierra Nevada de Santa Marta in the mountains near Venezuela. It's one mountain that goes up to close to 5,000 meters in altitude, close to 4,000 something. He went to see them there. He met with them and they talked to him clearly. He said, you are going to be the president, but only you will only succeed if you respect nature, if you respect diversities, and if you recognize that there is a government by people, from people, and you're just another government. He was told that yesterday, and that's beginning to move around today because it wasn't circulated, but it was as clear as that. So I'll tell you from my end, I couldn't sleep last night, I mean before as well, but I couldn't sleep last night because what was a tension before has become a despair now. There are options in this country and in these countries beyond the state. But if we do not organize them, if we don't, if we don't develop a mechanism whereby we take back from the state, not only the resources in terms of money, but the right to develop policy goes back to the people goes for good to the people into autonomy, then we won't succeed. And that has to become a very pragmatic process. But what has happened in the last 20 years is the opposite. Even indigenous peoples have gone in the direction of becoming bureaucrats, liking power and having a price. So in that context, if, if I think calmly, reasonably, there's no hope that this will lead into anything good. If I look to anywhere else in Latin America, but if I feel the strength of what we have that has been suppressed, things can change from here and become an explosion everywhere. And just remember, we're neighbors of Venezuela and Ecuador. Ecuador is right now in a massive uprising that will not stop. And Venezuela has a failed state, not a leftist state, not a rightist, but the state which is always the right. And the Venezuelans that have remained in Venezuela are able to live in spite of the absence of the state. So this context might lead to anything. That's where we are. I'm not hopeful and I'm happy. Where did these death squads that were known for killing students and trade unionists where are they today? Where are they going to reconstitute? Is this the principal threat that you're facing? When you say you're not facing the state actors, are these paramilitaries, like virtually death squads, where are they going to have their say? The machinery is in place. It's bigger than it ever was. It's, I mean, you know Israel. So this, the structure here is like that. They're everywhere. They're right here, right here. I could point out my window and tell you where they are right here. Then the, the production of coca, cocaine and marijuana is actually linked and funds these armed groups. So their power is extraordinary. But I think an image will help for people to understand how this works. President Biden uh, transforms Colombia into an extra member of NATO just now, during the elections. The police that murdered people during the, the peaceful uprising were given three bases as a gift by the US 
while the Inter-American Human Rights Commission condemned Colombia and the police for assassinations. One part of the equation. This is the strongest armed forces in the country and now a NATO member, extra member like Brazil and Argentina, only the three of them. So that's one piece. The other piece is the commander in chief of the Colombian armed forces during Santos government, while the peace agreement was being negotiated with FARC, General Barrero had to resign, not because he was caught in a crime, but because he was caught exposing it. Barrero was the commander of the Southwestern Division of the Colombian Army. He is directly linked to drug trafficking, the production the transformation and the export of cocaine directly. He's directly linked to the assassination of civilians, false positives, proved. All this stuff was leaked through tapping of different thousands of hours of conversations. And he's, he's called a, the stepfather, the padrino of the mafia that controls the entire cocaine production in the country. When he left this power, he was given contracts to look after the protection of social movement leaders and indigenous leaders in Cauca, this guy. And this is the time and the place where more people were murdered in the country. So this Barrero didn't go to jail. And then he became a candidate for the state of Cauca and he was promoted to that by President Uribe who actually said he was a good and honest man and so on. So we exposed finally through this process, the fact that each division of the Colombian army is in charge of the territory for two purposes, the accumulation of wealth through cocaine and the disruption, destruction of social movements and organizations through the establishment of a massive terror force that is in place. And all of this is exported. But cocaine does not leave the country or marijuana does not leave the country through these armed factions. It lives through Uribe and his mafias. So this amount of money goes up. So now you have an idea of what's Colombia. That's in place, John. That has not been touched. So when Petro says in his speech, as Justin was reminding us, that he's going to achieve love and he's going to bring Uribe in, that's when we feel we're dead. Because the only way you can talk to these guys is when you put them in jail. Put them in jail and we'll all talk. And that's what we're, I'll tell you clearly. If I see Uribe and the commanders of the army in jail, I'll get out to the streets because that's when we have to have an uprising. That's when we'll know we can breathe. But without them being out there, I don't think people will feel this freedom. And all we'll do is perpetuate the relationship between citizenship and state based on begging for something. Just throw me a coin. And that's what I think is, is coming unless we see a strike. There was a hint of a good strike yesterday in the speech. The last week, the commander of the, the police ordered the arrest of thousands of young people who were out in the first line of the mobilizations last year, and they were arrested. 
And Petro, in his speech yesterday, said clearly to the uh, Attorney General, free them now. Free all of them now. So that, when he's not yet the president, is a, an extraordinarily good sign. You will have to remember that when Petro was the commander of M19, he was in jail, but some of his closest friends were also brutally tortured and murdered. And yet he never left the country and he always challenged this regime. So that cannot be forgotten. He knows. He said a couple of times yesterday that no longer will this be a country where young people are rounded up and disappeared for their for their politics. So and one of the victims of the false positives came and and welcomed him and she held up a picture of her son and she said, you know, uh, we welcome to being president of our of our country. She basically said, like, all our hopes are in you now. Where's FARC right now? Where's FARC in this process? And where's the guerrilla movements that were, you know, effectively pushed into the hills for the last number of years? How do they stand to respond to this election generally? I'll give you the two two guerrillas. There were ELN and FARC. ELN was more pro-Cuba and was born a little bit later. And then FARC. FARC signed the peace agreement. It was an awful peace agreement and it was destroyed by the previous government. But Petro promises to bring it back. That would be an achievement. But where FARC is now, it is growing again. Its presence is felt throughout the country. Unfortunately, it is directly linked to drug trafficking. So FARC is another factor of terror, definitely, now against people. It's not an option. Mm-hmm. An armed option is not an option, be- mostly because of FARC and what it has become. It's terrible. I can tell you right here what they are, and they're awful, and they're now recruiting indigenous peoples massively as well. So there's a killing now going on between indigenous peoples for the profit of coca and cocaine and marijuana. So it's terrible. That's one. ELN. ELN grew after the peace agreement was signed. But also there were negotiations between the previous government, Santos, and ELN in Ecuador, which were broken. But during the negotiations, the government carried out attacks on behalf of the ELN with Brexit of the ELN. Like a false flag, false flag kind of attack they, operation. They can't control ELN. So ELN has clearly said they will support Petro once he wins. They will negotiate with Petro and they will reach, they want a peace agreement under Petro. So the question really goes to ELN. What happens with the ELN now? Because that's the armed insurgency. And the answer depends on whether the commitment is to overcoming the structure, the state, or the commitment is to taking part of the uh, wealth of the state, like another actor negotiating, this time with weapons. But are ELN representatives or any armed faction representatives of an armed insurgency from below against the state, nobody can say that today. Absolutely not. Not the strongest movements in Colombia now are unarmed, but that doesn't mean they're weak. 
you, I told you, 820 municipalities and 18 million people, the potential of that made the U.S. transform Colombia into a NATO country because these can... Now, one more thing that I wanted to say, if Colombia, if Colombia moved away from the usual expected U.S. control, which is like Israel in the Middle East, that would be real trouble for the U.S. Without Colombia as a military base, the U.S. would be in real trouble here. So that, that's the context, I think. There's something like more than 10, I think, military bases in Colombia, if I'm not mistaken. When you mentioned Uribe deserves to be in prison, I'm surprised that the Biden administration hasn't already, you know, less than 24 hours <laughs> since the election placed Colombia under sanctions, just as they did, you know, with Venezuela. If Petro makes good on the promises that he made to Colombia, including, you know, productive versus extractivist economy, economic reforms, including giving justice and sovereignty to indigenous communities, undermining the power of the narco traficantes that are, you know, intrinsically linked to U.S. imperial projects in Latin America. Like, what could be in store for Colombia as a punishment for acting on behalf of its people, even if, you know, Petro is a self-described, you know, democratic capitalist. You know, he's not like a, an explicit socialist or communist. What do you think could happen? And, and what, are, what are Colombians fearing right now? The fact that Colombia isn't, there isn't even a hint that Colombia will be placed like Venezuela under blockades and stuff like that tells you very much that Petro isn't a threat at all to the U.S. and it isn't a threat at all. Could Petro become a threat? Petro could become a threat if my hopes become reality, <laughs> which the chances for that I think are, are very slim, but maybe. I mean, if people become stronger and the agenda pushes Petro towards uh, more autonomous uh, communities, etc. If that happens, then yes. But what you're mentioning, the real, the key question is, once again, and I think that's what people should, if the machinery of war and terror supported by a mafia, because the Colombian government is a mafia, the Colombian elite is a mafia. I'm not saying this to insult anybody. I'm describing a sociological structure. If that mafia is dismantled or weakened significantly, if there are cracks in the military terror machinery and it, becomes to, it begins to be dismantled, which can happen through indigenous guards and other security mechanisms that are not armed forces, if these kinds of things happen, then the entire project of control of the U.S. over the continent would be threatened. There is no doubt, because then it, Colombia is a base for the U.S., and they've assumed it's a base. So that's where we're heading, and that's where we need to be very clear in Canada, in the U.S., everywhere else, pushing, pushing Petro to free himself from the control of the U.S. and from being a narco economy and from getting rid of the mafia so that we can breathe 
is much more effective than productive development projects to aid the people of Colombia. The hell with those. We know how to do that. Just let us breathe and we'll do it. Dr. Manuel Rosenthal, thank you so much for coming on The Brief and talking about this with us. It was great to have you on, Manuel. Thank you very much. Thank you, Laura, John, see you again. Justin, I didn't let you talk as much, so we have to do this again. <laughs> big, big hug to everybody. Thank you so much. Thanks, Manuel. And thanks, Justin. Bye-bye. Thank you, guys. <laughs>